I'm going to do my best, if I can, to finish this series that we've kind of been in since May on the Holy Spirit. Not because there isn't more material, but I've just got to stop at some point. We're going to move back to uh, some of the four questions we've been dealing with. But I, I, as we're working through this, uh, part of the impulse of it is this. One is, I think, again, the church calendar is an important feature in our life to remember some of the movement of how things are going on, if you will, in the church calendar and in the church world. Second thing is this, and I, I'm going I'm to start with this idea to, again today. I, do you think this is overstatement? <clears throat> you, you can respond to this. You know, sometimes I'd like for us to do a little more interacting because we do a lot of the back of the neck stuff. But would it be accurate to say this, that the presence of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus said, you need to wait until you're filled with power from the Holy Spirit on Acts when Jesus said this about Acts 2? Would it be fair to say this, that the reason this is so important for us to consider the work, the ministry, the person of the Holy Spirit is because Jesus never fundamentally changed the disciples? Think about that for a minute. That Jesus never fundamentally changed them. The last night of his life, they're arguing about position. They're cowards, if you will. Uh, They're certainly attached to Jesus. They care about him. They, They have an affection for him. But were they ever fundamentally changed until... Pentecost. That's that's just a question that's rolled around in my head for years. Rolled around in my head for years. Now that could be related to this when Jesus said in John 14, you can look at this later, he said as he's relating to them that he's leaving and he says this, it's to your advantage that I go. What? (laughs) It's to your advantage to go because if I do not go, the Holy Spirit will not be sent. It's to your advantage. I I would have argued right there till the cows come on, wouldn't you? I would have said, no, you got this all wrong, Jesus. Uh, It's much better for you to be here than there. It's better. That that this notion, this idea that it is to our advantage or what's the advantage of the disciples, that Jesus left. And follow that with the idea that maybe, perhaps, at at least considering, it's at least worth considering, Maybe put this in your brain to think about later. That Jesus never fundamentally changed them. Is that shocking to you? Is that a shocking idea or thought to you? That the incarnate God, wonderful ministry, teaching, all that, you know, didn't, however, fundamentally change them. Until they were endued with power. Just just something to think about. Again, this is part of the reason for me and my own thinking is such an important topic that we discuss every May and June, sometimes July <laughs> through August. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, there's lots more. And I'm trying again, as you will, to respond to some of the questions or some of the questions you raised through Socrative. I put that up a few weeks ago about some of the questions you may still have about the Holy Spirit. So I'm trying to include these. So anyway, so we've talked about or referred to uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the kind of four streams uh, that we have trouble uh, balancing or keeping in our lives. Remember we said the Holy Spirit has this ministry of presence where we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6, that the, the ministry of presence. Then there's the ministry of power where uh, we have spiritual gifts that we can use. And then there is, if you will, the, the, the ministry of proclamation where we have the ability to, to, um, to, to preach or to communicate the word of God in terms of witnessing. And then uh, there is the idea of the ministry of purity where uh, the Holy Spirit develops the fruit of the Spirit in our life. So all four of those are, are kind of the streams that you see uh, with respect to how the Holy Spirit works. Our difficulty is, again, as I've said, and I don't want to spend more time, our, our difficulty is we tend to build churches around one of them. We tend to build denominations around one. And instead of trying to embrace, and it's a struggle or a challenge to be able to do that. Now, today what I want to deal with is, uh, as we kind of finish this up, I get a little more practical in this particular sense, is in the area of the person of the Holy Spirit. I have, for lack of a better thought, I have a rock and roll mind. Uh, I, there are all kinds of songs that come to me when somebody says something. Like somebody say, I know, I know, 
And then I finish it with, come on, y'all are old people like me. When somebody will say something like they're going, you know, okay, Cliff, I know, I know, I know. It's only rock and roll. <laughs> First thing that comes to my mind. I'm sad to say that. I'm just sad to say that. If so, I say, well, Cliff, I know. Really? It's only rock. No. Uh, so Dave Fatkins like that with me. Dave knows every rock and roll song that ever was, if you ever have a question. Uh, and I like that. You know, I, I've often thought that one, one of the songs we ought to sing at the end of a service, you know, when we're asking people to turn their life over to Jesus, is Santana. You got to change your evil ways. <laughs> I think we get more people. <laughs> So, when I'm thinking about this, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to let you into my mind, which is a scary place to be. But as I think about this, about the person of the Holy Spirit, of really, how do we relate? How do we understand our relationship with him? I thought of this song by Spanky and our gang. I'd really like to know you. I'd like to get to know you if I could. I, that's a great old song. If you're over 40, you know what I'm talking about. If not, Google it. Um, but, but this idea is, I'd, I'd really, I'd like to get to know you. And, and in, with respect to the Holy Spirit, I think there are some vague ideas, there's some vagueness about this that sometimes mitigate against us of having a more vibrant, a more real relationship with this third member of the Trinity. It's interesting to me, uh, I, uh, in, in our lives, I, you know, we, we all have people that we can identify, and then we have people that we know, right? I mean, you have people you can identify, you know their name and know a little bit about them, but there are other people that we know, that we have a deep and abiding relationship. At Mid-America, where I teach, it's, uh, it's always interesting uh, what happens is I have these young people that I'm, that I'm teaching, and you know, when I go to work, I go to work. Uh, you know, I'll usually wear a pair of slacks and a nice shirt or something like that, or sometimes a jacket uh, to increase my authority with them. <laughs> that doesn't work. <clears throat> yeah. Try to look the part every once in a while. And what's funny is uh, they, they see me like that all the time. And then there'll be a basketball game at the school or they'll see me out in public. And I'll have on jeans or in the summertime shorts and chacos. And they're going, you, you wear shorts? And I'm going, I'm a very complicated person. What you see in the classroom is about that much of me, okay? I mean, it's crazy. It is. Like, you wear shorts, oh, or chacos, you know? I haven't had a pair of shoes on in a week. This is the first pair I've had on in weeks. But th that idea of getting to know people, really having some knowledge of them, understanding them. I, I, I remember years ago, very, very profound, that to get to know people. Um, you know, on the other side, I've made some of those same mistakes, I remember particularly a young lady who was an athlete, uh, which I kept trying to remind her she's a student athlete, not an athlete student, but that's another thing. Um, and uh, she wasn't very engaged in class with me, which I took personal. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I thought, man, this is important stuff about God, and this is important stuff about that. And, you know, it could be the teacher is a little boring. I've been that before. I heard a guy say one time, if people start falling asleep during a, a teaching or a sermon, somebody go wake the teacher up. And uh, so that's possible. You know, I could just numb their brains. But I remember kind of drawing a conclusion about this student and thinking, well, they're just not that interested. They're just not that dialed in. Now, what I was doing was I was assessing that person on a 50-minute class two or three times a week. And I remember a few weeks later, I was in chapel sitting in another section of the chapel um, and happened to notice that young lady. And it's like the Spirit of God said to me, hey, big boy, you don't know as much as you think you do. I, was, I just noticed the passion and the demonstrable kind of love that she seemed to be having for God during a time of worship. And Spirit of God just kind of checked me and said, you know, you don't know these people as well as you think you do. You're, you're, you're making an assessment here off a very thin piece of information. And so this idea of getting, getting to know another person, the, the idea of having a relationship, specifically with 
this idea of getting to know the Holy Spirit. Now, let, let's, let's think about this here for a bit. I'm going to get to the, to the text here in just a minute. But, but part of this idea, I think, of the Holy Spirit is this. It's easy sometimes to understand Jesus, you know, we, is the incarnate human being, son of God. And God the Father, we kind of understand from that idea of kind of running everything. But the Spirit, even that word there, the Spirit is, is more of a, of a nondescript kind of understanding. And this really doesn't help uh, in, my, in the King James when they translate Geist, which is uh, the German word for spirit, but it comes out ghost. <laughs> and so that's not helpful a lot of times when people think about ghosts. Uh, instead of a person. Uh, and so, I'm not saying King James is bad, I'm just saying they translated it off a German translation, and the word spirit is geist. Uh, so, so the idea of understanding this uh, matter, or this one as a person, uh, seems to me uh, to be a, a challenge. I read this quote the other day, and this, this gets added, I think, somewhat, from Oswald Chambers, who said this, the Holy Spirit is the first power, or person, actually, we practically experience in the Christian life. He's the first power or person that we experience. Because remember, the whole, Jesus said the Holy Spirit, he'll convince us of sin and draw us. But he says he's the last person or power we come to understand. It's like there's a lot of things we have to unpack or get to understand to, to kind of get to the point that we have some sense of understanding. And so I, I want to sort of work us through this uh, to say, how do I relate more personally? How do I get to know the person of the Holy Spirit? How, how do I get to know this presence, not just as a feeling or like electricity, something out there, but as a person? And so I'm going to try to work us through that to, to, to some extent. Let me say a couple of things, and I've got here on your outline here, I've got all kinds of notes here that I don't have in front of here. Let's, uh, let's, let's begin with this A, and I'm going to just walk you through this, the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things I teach my students is to never use the impersonal pronoun or indefinite pronoun, it, with the Holy Spirit, Ever. That's because in the New Testament, and you can refer to this uh, throughout uh, the Gospel of John. If you're really interested, I think one of the greatest sections on the teaching on the Holy Spirit is John 14, 15, 16. Y'all remember that? <laughs> we worked through that. But if you want to go through that is the largest section, I think, in all the New Testament that deals specifically with this matter of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus is about to leave his earthly ministry here. So John 14, 15, 16, 17, you want to understand or dig in or delve in to understand the Holy Spirit, that's where to go. All these other passages are embedded that we'll be working with today in other, uh, other areas. And so the idea of the Spirit, so why is that, Cliff? Why do we refer to it as a person? Because the pronouns that are used with Spirit are always He. Now that doesn't mean gender, but it does mean that it's the notion of a person. Now, here, again, I'm, I don't want to numb your brain up too much, but the word pneuma, spirit, that is used is a feminine noun, but it used a personal pronoun uh, with it to, an or, uh, to, to suggest the idea of he. And so sometimes we have to kind of clean our language up even with we referring to the Holy Spirit. People say, did you feel it today? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Yes. Well, the spirit. No, not it. What? He. And this, again, is not a gender issue like he's only interested in, in being male. But, but the pronoun used throughout the New Testament is uniformly the idea of he, the Holy Spirit. When he, the, truth, the Spirit of truth has come. So, so it's a challenge for us sometimes to sort of get this nondescript person that we sometimes can't get our arms around as a, as a real person. Now, there's some other, if you will, matters here. So I'm going to walk us through. Go to the book of Acts, if you will. Go to your table of contents. That's in the front. And uh, find, find the book of Acts. We're going to be going to chapter 13 first. Acts. It's a 1035 in my Bible. We're going to Acts 13. And I just want to lift out what I'm going to call or refer to uh, these characteristics of the person of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, in Acts 13, again, we have these early writings where uh, it says, now in chapter 13, verse 1, now there were, there were at Antioch in the church, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas of Simon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaeum, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set up, wouldn't you like to have heard that? Or how did they hear it? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, no, I don't think anybody knows. I don't think there's any indication in the text that we know exactly what that is. But, but it is, it, in my mind, at least referring, the Holy Spirit said, now you set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Let me suggest to you, if you will, that one of the reasons we can relate to the Holy Spirit as a person, not only because of use of personal pronouns, because number one, and I don't have it on your outline, but you can, you can list it like this, he has this, the feature of a will. Part of personhood, being a human being even, is that there is the ability to have a will. I want to do this. I will do that. And so here we have the Holy Spirit expressing, hey, this is what I want done. And that is typically associated, if you will, with uh, the matter of, uh, of a human person or, or a personality or a person that has a will. He didn't say, hey, do whatever you'd like. He says, this is what I want done. Okay? So first of all, we understand this has some, something to do with he has a will for these people, with us, all kinds of matters. So we don't relate to just some feeling. We don't relate to some impression. We're relating to a person who has a will. Okay, does that make sense? Number two, uh, we're going to look at another. Go over to Acts 15. Acts 15. This is the uh, church council where they're trying to decide, you know, do you have to have circumcision or not? Or can you just believe in Jesus? Or are Gentiles a part of the deal? And uh, so there's a long discussion there, and uh, there's a couple of passages there, but um, uh, I've always been interested when they get ready to send the letter, verse 22 of chapter 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch. It's back to 13. Which Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas had among the brethren. And they sent a letter. And as they're writing this letter, look down here, uh, verse 27. Therefore, we sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by the word of the mouth that we, you know, we've talked about. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. I, I'm going to suggest, and you, know, you don't have to agree exactly, but I'm going to suggest that this has something to do with the Holy Spirit operating in the area of a mind. It seemed good to him. It's, it's not an impulse. It's not a feeling. It's a mind. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. He said, and to us. That this may suggest the operation of mind. It seemed good. How do you know that? Because you have to be able to make distinctions between good or bad. Yes? Well, I think the word means this. Uh, it, it, I don't think it has the idea of contingency. Like, eh, it might be good, may not be good. It's more the idea, it's, this is it. It's good. I think in English, the word has the idea of contingency. Well, it seemed like it might work, but we're not sure. In Greek, it has the idea of certainty. It seemed good, this is what it is, by the Holy Spirit. Am I answering your question? But the English word does kind of leave that, doesn't it? Tra translators have to work with the language they're working with, you know. And so the translation there might suggest contingency in English, but in the original language, it's the idea. It seemed, it's, in other words, it's a certainty. It is good. It seemed, in other words, he, he said it's good. And I think that's a function of the mind, Doug. Same as hope? Yeah. There's two different meanings in the Bible in the day, sir. I hope my team wins. I have hope in God. I would say it's different in this way. I, no, it's not. It's the same word. Yeah, same word. That's scary, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, um, he's asking the question for recording that like hope is maybe a different word in the English. It's not really, but here's the deal. If we think about it, why is it that your team, 
Let's talk about OU. Why? No. Because <laughs> your team and my team are the same team. Okay. Why is it that when you hope in your team, they may let you down? It's getting better. Well, because the team can what? Let you down? Why? In hope or faith. Let me say it this way. We've said, I've said this before. In hope or faith, the issue isn't hope and faith. The issue is the object of your hope and faith. If the object of your hope is unreliable, you're just do your best. However, if God is the object of your hope, is He reliable? Okay. So we hope in God. So the Word isn't any different. It's the understanding how the Word operates. So anytime we say hope, we're saying I'm putting my confidence in that thing over there. You know, I hope my car makes it to work. Well, it may or may not. And it, and it doesn't matter how much hope you have. You say, I'm getting offline here. But it doesn't matter how much hope you have. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. This is, a little, this is a part of the thing we have to dig around. It doesn't even matter how much faith you have. It matters the object. In a church in America today, I think we've got this thing completely turned around. We think faith and hope are the issue. They're not. It's the object of your faith and hope. You don't have to yell or scream and, you know, turn the music up so loud that it kills all the insects in the room, you know. <clears throat> I've been there. <clears throat> I've done that. Because I thought if I could get everybody's hope and faith jazzed up, that we could get something done, you know. But that's not the issue. So you can, you can have a boatload of hope in the wrong object, and that object will let you down. And you know, Jesus said you could have a grain of mustard seed in him and it can move them out. Why? Because of the object. So th th these, these are how we have to understand the terms, but they're important. And so I think here, back to the original point, that, that the Holy Spirit has a mind. And what I'm trying to do is, is suggest that, that we kind of break out of our tendency to treat the Holy Spirit like an influence, a feeling, uh, uh, just a presence instead of a person. To, to be able to say, I wonder what the will of the Holy Spirit would be here. I wonder what the mind of the Spirit is on this matter. So that, so that I would relate to the Holy Spirit as a person. And not just an influence. And, and, not, and not just some kind of idea or feeling. Now the third, the third thing we'll, we'll look at here now. Uh, I, you know, suggest it, you know, could be that I'm, I don't want to overread this, but the third feature, so a will, a mind, and then go to your table of contents, find the book of Ephesians or in your, in your tablet, wherever you got it, in Ephesians, wherever that is, here we go, that's the New Testament, that's in 1114, and go to chapter uh, 4. In chapter 4, <clears throat> I'm going to come back to some of this, but I just want to show you this feature. Um, there's a third aspect or feature of the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm going to suggest from a, from a psychological, I don't use that word exactly, but from a psychology standpoint, generally psychologists would say that human personality exists or is combined in emotion or mind, will, and now emotion. Look here at chapter 4 of, of, of I'm in 4, right? Yeah, here we go. In chapter 4, uh, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only for good what is edification according to the need of the moment, so that give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you sealed for the day of redemption. Now, grieve is the idea of, if you will, called sadness. Uh, the idea here is emotion. Is the, is the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit capable, if you will, of emotion? Yes. And Paul seems to suggest, and we're going to look at this in a little, a little more detail here in a minute, that there is this sense of emotion, grieving. Um, you know, we, when, when we grieve, like if you lost a loved one or something's happened, 
It's not that we feel shame or bad. It's that we feel loss. So, so if you think about this for a second, if the Holy Spirit is grieving, what is the loss he's grieving? Did you do something to him? Hey, you, you made me upset. You hurt me. So I, I think that's way, way too psychological. If the Holy Spirit is a person, I believe he is, and we do things that grieve him, it's because something's happening to us and others. Could be our dullness. <clears throat> yeah. But he doesn't grieve it because it's affecting him. He grieves it because it's affecting who? Us. See, this is, this is an important thing. It's not like, I mean, I, I've heard people say before, oh, you know, I don't want to disappoint God. And I'm going, you can't, okay? He knows everything about you, okay? He's not surprised. Louis Pilar used to always say, don't think that God ever gets disillusioned with you because he never had any illusions about you to begin with. <clears throat> okay, so calm down. <clears throat> yeah, don't. Don't worry. Oh, God is so disillusioned. No, he's not. He can be grieved because in the context here, we'll see it a bit, of community. He knows what it's doing to us and others. It's sort of like when a parent sees a child do something that they know is not going to help them. They're not going, boy, you have just made me upset. You're thinking, what this is doing to you, you have no idea. It's grieving to me. It's grievous to me. So that the Holy Spirit... Maybe you haven't thought about this, or maybe you have. He is capable of emotion. Interesting. Our views of God, now I will just tell you this. Um, I've got some theological bones here I'm trying to keep from sticking out. But, but the idea that God, in his immutability, which is that he doesn't change, Or the idea that he knows everything there is to know has led us sometimes to adopt a more Greek understanding of what many theologians called impassibility. That God can't be affected. I knew you were going to do that. Uh, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. Yeah, that's been from time eternity when I planned your life. I, you were going to do that. This idea of God's impassibility, of his knowledge and understanding like that, has made him just somebody sitting up there. Oh, I knew that. Instead of a God who really can experience life with us and be engaged and grieve. And I think we've bought in way too much into a Greek concept that comes, my judgment, this is close to thoughts and opinions, teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, it's elders and leadership has come down through the Greek fathers in some regard toward this God is this immutable, impassable, if you will, unmoved mover that Aristotle talked about. If you'd like to talk about that, I'd be glad to talk with you about that because it makes God a machine instead of a father. Instead of, like John Wesley said, the model of the Christian life is not sovereignty, it's family. It's a family God is building. So he is able. But be careful with this. I, I know when I grew up and I, I heard this idea about grieving the Holy Spirit, it, this is just cliff, okay? You know that, right? So I'm out of school. So um, I had a real um, puny view that I somehow was making God sad. Poor God, you know. Instead of if he's sad or grieved, it's not because he's sad I did something to him. It's I've done something to me. Or I've done something to one of his children. That's a real tricky balance there because when I've heard about disappointing God or grieving him, it sometimes falls out in that idea like God is sulking somewhere, you know. Well, you made me mad. Or you hurt me. I don't think that's what this is suggesting at all. We'll look in a little more detail. Can he be grieved? Yes. Grief means to bring sorrow or a sense of loss. 
But the real important question is what is the object of that grief? Is it himself or is it us? And I can't find any other conclusion from the scripture to lead me to anything other than that God is ultimate love and compassion. And we call it agape, which is other-centered love. Other-centered love. That any grief is his knowledge of what we've done to ourselves. Just like you did when you were a parent. Just like what you did when you were a parent. When your kids did something that you knew was bad or unhealthy for them, you grieved over them. So I'm going to leave it there. But I I just want to ask you to consider these matters. So let's go on to the next one now. Number two. The only reason I put two on here and nothing else, I want to get through this today. (laughs) That's the plan. Now, uh, relating to this person. Did you know uh, psychologists have also discovered, it's interesting, um, that we see people or we relate to people in one or sometimes combination of three different ways. And there could be four, but we'll stick with three. Then when we relate to people, we often relate to people as scenery. You know? I mean, I, I, look, I don't know what to do. I'm like you. Um, I try to be open to the Spirit. I, maybe at some point. But you drive up on a corner now, anywhere here in North Oklahoma City, and on the corner is somebody with a sign. When was the last time you read it? <laughs> They're scenery. They're just there. You know? Uh, we, we tend to relate like that. Uh, I had a professor in seminary named Dr. Wong. Brilliant guy. You know, culturally uh, uh, had some problems and relationally. When I first met Dr. Wong, because uh, he's so smart, I wanted to be around and see if it would rub off on me, you know. Um, he, he, was, he was a genius, but he, he wouldn't relate to anybody. I, I would see him in the hall. Hi, I'd walk by Dr. Wong. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Keep going. Never, never stopped. Just walked right past me. And so after two years of that, <laughs> I, I decided I probably won't say hi anymore. <laughs> hi, Dr. Wong. You know, because he just saw me as scenery. Um, I... I mean, he knew I was in his classes, um, and, uh, you know. But I remember I went back to the seminary 15 years later and took a trip with some kids. And we got checked in late at night at the hotel there on campus. And Dr. Wong was there helping some Chinese students. And he, he, he never spoke English except on campus because he always knew how difficult it was for some of the Chinese students to integrate into the culture. So he, at home they spoke Chinese. He, he, he had office, I'm not kidding, he had office hours at the, at the seminary on uh, Tuesday and Thursday from 8 to 8.05. He was tenured. Tuesday, Thursday, and on Wednesday, Friday, it was 10 to 10.15. Man, I want those office hours. <laughs> so he wasn't relating to me. So 15 years later, I see him at the hotel there. And he's helping check students. And I went, <laughs> stupid. I did this. I went to him and said, Dr. Wong, Cliff Sanders. I was in your 1986 uh, Pauline New Testament historical criticism class. It's nice to see you. He goes, hi, how are you? And walked right past me. Never changed. Scenery. Second way we see people. A means to an end. A means. Here would be a great question. Did anybody eat out yesterday? Did you, did you get the name of your waiter or waitress? Or were they just, hey, could I have some more tea? <laughs> you know, waiters, waitresses, people at the dry cleaners. We can even do this with other people that we have as acquaintances that we think, okay, this person can help me get into this particular area. Or this person can help me to to do a better job. Or this person is a means for me to get involved with this group and maybe I can advance my career. We see people like that, don't we? We relate to people like that if we're not careful. People become the means to an end. And we got to watch that. Uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're constantly aware of the fact that you might, is, or is a friendship here or a relationship that you have, is it 
turning into means. And the third way, of course, the third way is see people as people of value, of importance. You know, so, so I, I, wonder, I wondered about this. I wondered, so what, um, what is it uh, that, that we, as we relate to the Holy Spirit, how, how we relate to him, do we relate to him as scenery? Yeah, well, the Holy Spirit's always here. Thank, thank the Lord, you know, I'm glad about that. <clears throat> or the Holy Spirit is here because I feel better, or the Holy Spirit isn't here because I don't feel better, right? People do that, don't they? I've heard people say, well, I, you know, I'm not going there anymore. Like, well, I just don't feel God's presence anymore. Well, maybe you ought to bring him. <laughs> you know? He's supposed to live in here, right? He doesn't live in his building over here. He lives here. But, but a lot of people will start associating that. He's a means, you know, to, to make me feel better, to, 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 to make me more whatever. Uh, and, and so we, we can do that with the Holy Spirit. Or we can learn to relate to him in ways that, that enable us to treat him or relate to him as a real person. So here's, here's how we, we want to be alert of it. And I, some of these are a, a little bit, you don't hear these a lot. So I'm just kind of digging them out, okay? Part of my job is I have to tell you the truth sometimes, which is not a lot of fun. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians 4 on this. How do we relate to him? He can be grieved. Now, I want you to notice something here. So how do we relate are relating. It can grieve him. So I want to come back to this. Now notice here, uh, there's a, in the book of Ephesians, the first half, the first three chapters are, are what we call uh, declarative statements about uh, this is the truth. They're not imperative. They're not telling you what to do. They're just declarative. The first three chapters, there's no commands in the first three chapters. all declarative. Just God did this. This is true. There you go. In chapter 4, it moves into imperatives. Now, here are the commands. Here's how you live. Here's how you relate. Here's how you respond. So in this section, we're right in this imperative section. I want you to notice here where Paul begins to give a series of exhortations. They start at 4.1, but I mean, we're kind of in a, in a series. Notice here in verse 25, Therefore, lay aside all falsehood and speak the truth to each other with his neighbor. We're members of one another. That's an important piece here. Therefore, lay aside falsehood and speak the truth to each other with his neighbor. We're members of one another. In other words, this is a body. He's already worked through that in chapter 4 earlier. That we're the body of Christ working together, each member providing what the body needs for its functioning. You can read that earlier in chapter 4. And then I think he begins to work through some of the ways that we do that. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification. Edification means building up, strengthening. According to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. What is that? That's speech. That's the way we talk to each other. And he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor put aside and malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God is forgiving God. I want to suggest here that in relating to the Holy Spirit, that grief occurs to the Holy Spirit when we don't treat each other right, when we talk to each other right. That's embedded right there. The kind of language we use with one another and the kind of way we relate to one another. This again is why I'm suggesting grieving the Holy Spirit isn't making him feel sad about himself. It is this idea of being sad about how what's going on in the community. Stuart? Yes. Just don't let it happen. Okay, here's the question for the recording. If God's omnipotent and omniscient and, uh, you know, he can do all that kind of stuff, why not just stop it? How, how can you experience grief? <clears throat> well, I, let, me, let me go back to my theological bones here, okay? That what I understand is that the nature of God is holy love. That's his nature, in my judgment. And, I, and I've drawn that back from the fact that the Trinity, God's personhood, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is love going on in between them, not sovereignty, not omniscience, before He ever created the world. So out of God's essence of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, out of that essence comes creation. But was God God before there was a creation? Okay, so what was God like before? Love. Deferring, if you will, almost love that the Father defers to the Son, the Son defers to the Spirit. That in that matrix with God is who He is and how He expresses Himself. I would say, you know, there's, there, there can be some pushback here by people. I understand that. That's okay. In my theology, my understanding of God, because if I start there, that omniscience, omnipresence, uh, immutability, sovereignty, justice, mercy, all of those are attributes. Attributes are not the same as essence. So I have all of these attributes flowing out of. So if I'm really love, if I'm really love, am I going to make people not do anything that's wrong? Am I going to make them? I I would defer to say to this. These are attributes of God. Because I've said to you before, I I don't have the yeah, but theology. God is love. Yeah, but he's also justice. (laughs) God is love, and any justice that he expresses is an expression of holy love. God's not transcendent, meaning he's above the creation and all. Yeah, but he's also imminent. He's in the world. I don't have that kind of theology. Any transcendence or any imminence has to be expressed out of his essence. And so I don't, for me, Stuart, there's not a big conflict. Now, maybe I don't think strong enough about this, but I don't have any conflict with that. But it's where we begin. What is God at his essence? What, who is he? Yes. For the recording, he's saying we may be associating grief or anger as a matter of the fall, but Jesus himself experienced grief and anger. <clears throat> holy, holy love. Yeah. Yeah. But he was still this, wasn't he? He's still this. I think this is how, the, for me, the, the grid that I have to understand, or I'll just say, I think we get God at conflict with himself. He's merciful, yeah, but he's also just. So which side are you going to get on? If there's any justice from him, it is, in, it is fueled and it is brought through holy love. If there's any mercy that he expresses as an attribute, it's expressed. If there's any omniscience, it's omniscience or omnipresence or immutability that's expressed through the, through the matrix of holy love that keeps him from getting in conflict with himself because they're not equal. They can't be. Jerry? Yeah, and that could be answered in the last Can I just say, and it, you know, y'all did this to me. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I would just like for you to consider. Um, <clears throat> see, I believe God is sovereign over his sovereignty. I don't think anybody makes him do anything. He does, nothing makes him do anything. What he does is an expression of who he is. That <clears throat> every religion in the world claims their God is powerful. Power goes with the job description of God. The Christian gospel, as well as Judaism, I think, 
says, this God's got power, but it's informed by love. In fact, the scripture talks about covenant love, chesed. That, that this, any of this power, any of this omniscience, any of this, any of these expressions that are typically the job description of any God, Greek, Roman, Persian, you name it, they got all these characteristics. You know the one they don't have? Love for their creation. This is where the Christian gospel and Judaism completely break the mold. But we're so influenced by, by Greek concepts of God that we get this power structure going and it gets loose of what's the very essence of him. Does that make sense? I mean, it's either, it's either this God really is love or it's not. This God is love and you can count on him, you can trust him, you can depend on him. Or he's justice, but he's also that. And you, boy, who knows where you're going to catch him on whatever day. Now, that, I'm probably trivializing that a bit. But this idea of grieving him comes back to the idea of how we're treating one another. And it's not he's grieved like you've made me upset or you know, you've hurt me. You know, you, you, We've all been around people like that. Well, you know, when you did that really hurt me. Come on. It's not other-oriented love. That's what agape is. That's a good definition for it. It's other-oriented love. So he can be grieved. When, when I don't get along with others, it grieves the Spirit. Why? Because it's concerning to him about how we're relating to one another. What I did to Eric or what I said or how I didn't say. I just ask you to consider. Notice here, it's the way we talk and the way we treat each other. Look there. Unwhole, no unwholesome word, but words that build up. You know, Marty was uh, a few weeks ago on this uh, encourage one another. I was sitting there listening. I promise I was. And, uh, but sometimes I start thinking. And uh, I thought about when he said encourage one another. And that's what they, he says right here. It, 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 but provide a word for encouragement, for edification. The word edificate means to build, like building a house. Build it up. The need of the moment to give grace to those who hear. Is that what is characteristic of our words? Is that what we're doing when, when people get with us? That they say, you know what? When I got through being with you, I was built up. I, I was strengthened. I was encouraged. When, when I left, I experienced grace from your words. I, I don't know. For me, Becky says sometimes I sound like a drill instructor. Like I'm barking stuff out. Okay. You know, she goes, <clears throat> stop. She, she got a hold of me the other day. I was talking to mom. Mom, mom, hey, we got to do this. She goes, Cliff, quit barking at your mother. Luckily, my mom can't hear. <clears throat> so I settled that down a little bit. But I, she, she did. She said, Cliff, your, your tone sounds like a drill. No offense to you, Eric. Drill instructor. <clears throat> I know, I know. I'm with you, brother. I, I'm with you. That, that, that idea, but, but about my words. Are my words encouraging? It, this has got to be how the Spirit is grieved because how we treat others. It's not about Him. Don't worry about, oh, the Spirit is grieved. He's upset with me. He's grieved and concerned about how we've treated each other and how we've discussed matters. Now, you know, listen, I'm not saying we have to all, you know, I, again, I'm not saying we have to be like, you know, in uh, uh, Dr. Doodle, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. I'm not saying that, <clears throat> you know. I'm not that deep. I'm, I'm serious. You, you're, you're realizing that, right? Remember that movie of the grandmother when Hercules, Hercules. I'm not, I'm not saying we go around like that all the time. But I'm saying that if we, when we speak to others, when we communicate to others, is it building them up? We may have to say, hey, now look, Eric, and Eric and I can do this. Hey, Eric, you need to sort of take a look at this because this isn't building you up in your life. It's taking you down. Now, you know, I got to bring a little challenge here to you. But edifying. The need of the moment. Have you learned there are times when you ought to be quiet? It's true. But you should not say it. Right? Boy. And it gives grace to those who hear. Let bitterness and wrath and anger clamor sound to me. Be kind to one, tender heart, forgiving each other. Why? What does God want? He wants his kids to get along. 
that what you want? My dad called my brother and I, we were little kids, Cain and Abel. I don't know which one I was. But he would say to me, boys, you know, we're sitting here. Yes. You know, I saw pictures of us the other day. When we were kids, we only wore shorts, no shoes, no shirts, nothing. It was crazy. I thought, no wonder we're all having trouble. You know, <clears throat> what's that growing on my arm? You know, that is wild. He would say, boys, when you guys don't get along, it breaks your mother's heart. He never said him. <clears throat> I did notice that after a few years of that. What, what, what grieves that? To, if you will, that his kids aren't getting along. So here, I've got two more here. I, we don't have time. I've got to stop. Boy, they're big ones too. Maybe we're going to do this next week. <laughs> Good night. Okay, here, here, here's one. You know what I did last week? I asked you to think of something meaningful to you about being filled with the Spirit. You, you know what I did? I just I felt the Lord let me. Every morning now when I fill my coffee cup, I pray. Okay. That's not, and I said, Lord, I'm not trying to be flippant about this. I'm not trying to be funny about this. I'm trying to remember to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So when I fill my coffee cup, which is early, as soon as I jump out of bed, filled. Maybe you're doing something like that. Now this week, I'd like to get to know you as a person. Would, would you think of something you can do? That's meaningful to you. I've got some ideas, but is meaningful to you that you would relate to the Spirit in your life, in your decisions, or either by the understanding that He has a mind, that He knows what's going on. You're not having to inform Him anything. You might just say to Him, you know, I know you know this. Can you be involved with me? Would you? Here's where I think. Help. Can you relate in a meaningful and authentic way in your own life for understanding the Spirit has a mind or that the Spirit has a will? A meaningful, authentic way for you to say, should I be considering that the Spirit has a will for me today in this situation or circumstance? Or third, we've talked a good bit about this, about Re relating in a way with people this f coming week with your language and your actions that you recognize is a way to not grieve the Holy Spirit. The way you talk to others. The way you relate. Are you forgiving? Are you kind? Are you tenderhearted? Are you forgiving? An authentic way for you to say in this week, I want my life to relate to the Spirit as a person, you might be amazed what happens. We might be amazed what happens. As we stop thinking about the Spirit as an influence or a feeling, but a person, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you uh, promised us it would be better if you left. You promised us that it's to our advantage now that you're not here physically. We still struggle with that. But you said it's not like you're leaving. It's to your advantage and do the best you can. But you said you would send the Holy Spirit. So for every believer, every follower of Jesus here today, help us to live this week relating to you as a person. As best we know how. As we relate to others throughout the week. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.